Sync Book Press and Radio 8-Ball invite you to the 2014 Olympia Sync Summit, the weekend of August 8th in Olympia, Washington. Hosted by Alan Abadessa-Green of Sync Book Press and Andras Jones of Radio 8-Ball. Featuring a guided tour of the Kabbalistic Tree of Olympia. Speakers include Rodney Asher, Joe Alexander, Marty Leeds, Will Morgan, Scott Onstott, James Evan Pilato, Ezra Sanzerbell, Michael Schott, Andy Schmushkin, and many more. Please support this event by visiting thesyncbook.com slash OLY2014. That's thesyncbook.com slash OLY2014. For links to the campaign, where you can purchase your pass to the event or one of the available sync perks. This promises to be the most ambitious and intimate sync book event yet. Will you be coming to Olympia? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the angle of the dangle is inversely proportional to the heat of the beat. Hello and good evening. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Uh, tonight, we discover the element of truth and try to figure out what that has to do with the number 42 on this 13th day of May for episode number 136. Parenthetically, no pattern implied. And we'll do so with an information age science rock star. Good evening, friends. Doug here. And tonight we're spending 42 minutes with Derek Muller, scientist, educator, filmmaker, and independent producer. Dr. Muller is the creator of the YouTube channel Veritasium, a science video blog featuring experiments, expert interviews, cool demos, and discussions with the public about everything science. More information about Veritasium can be found at veritasium.com. It's an extremely popular channel with well over a million subscribers and has even spawned a second meta channel in which to look a little behind the curtain at its host. Derek has a few events in the nearest future that you may be interested in. May 21st in West Vancouver at K. Meek Theater, May 31st at the YouTube Fan Fest in Sydney, and June 6th hosting Michio Kaku in Melbourne. It's an honor and pleasure to have him with us tonight. Hello, Derek. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Um, because the videos, you're, you're a kind of laid-back, approachable guy. Do you ever get the, the doctor or the honorific? Uh, you know, it's not something that I would necessarily ask for, but, uh, you know, you spend three and a half years of your life doing a PhD, so it's nice when uh, when people acknowledge it. But, uh, no, uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm just a guy, a regular guy like everyone else. <laughs> well, you tend to start your videos with misconceptions, and maybe that's a good place to start here. And by here, I'm thinking about the intersection of magic and science. Uh, around Christmas, you quoted Einstein saying... There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. What is your relationship to magic? And what does that have to do with science? That's a very good question. I mean, I feel like as a kid, uh, I loved magic. And 
I think every kid loves magic. And as you grow up a bit, I mean, you find the most magical things are are the scientific things. I mean, there's that, uh, I think, is it Asimov, the quote, which is saying, you know, uh, any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's C. Clark, Arthur C. Concept. Clark. Arthur C. Clark, there you go. Thank you for for the correct source. But, uh, yeah, it, it's that idea that, that really figuring out how the world works is is magical, and and that is really what sucked me into science initially. And uh, like I said in the video, I, I find that quote from Einstein very interesting because I flip flop between the two views. You know, from time to time, I'm totally uh, kind of have a, a, a realist view of the world, which is these are you know several particles interacting in in let's say four ways. And that produces every phenomenon that we see. And in that way, nothing is a miracle. It's, it's really just the, the fundamental interactions of these particles. Um, on the other hand, the things that come out of such simple sets of particles and interactions are extraordinarily magical and, and intriguing and enticing, and, and the world is, is a beautiful place. So, um, so as I say, I, I flip-flop between the two views, which is why I find the quote so interesting. Well, there's something interesting about science that is there's and oftentimes whenever I have discussions that it, it seems like I'm I'm divided. It's like uh, we're living in, in a divided world. But in this case, there's theoretical science, which is, you know, learning laws and books and that kind of stuff. And then there's like the application of that to real life, which is more like embodied science. And it seems like as a child, you study science really hands on. You go to your science center, and they do things like the kind of things you do in your videos. Um, I'm just wondering why why is it that there's somehow the wonder, where does that go? Why is it we get older and, and then science becomes dry and boring? <laughs> I, I think that's a good question as well. And... and uh... I, I, to me, the wonder never disappeared in a way. Uh, obviously, I, I, I took science through to the, the highest levels, but um, I, I can recognize for a lot of people the magic of science does wear off. And I think that's partly because science is challenging and, and partly because to be really rigorous about science, there's a lot of mathematics involved and there's a lot of very sort of subtle uh, thinking which needs to be done. Um, and even at the very highest levels, you know, things become quite esoteric. And, and in that way, you know, I even reached a limit where I said, you know, I know as much science as, as I kind of want to know at this point, and anything beyond this is uh, kind of unnecessary. Um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, why there is this problem. But one of my hypotheses for why, you know, science becomes kind of dry it's because the type of people who end up in uh, careers researching science are typically people who have uh, unique psychological attributes, and those may not be especially social, and they much, may be much more uh, sort of, you know, they can deal with tedium, they have, you know, extreme focus, and that may not be entirely relatable. So, I mean, that may be one of the reasons why science doesn't seem uh, as magical as you get older, because it, it's sort of brought to you by people who um, have a unique set of psychological attributes that, that are not that social. 
you even make the point in one of your videos that the ones that are making the most startling discoveries are young and they haven't filled their brain up with anything yet. Yeah, I, I think that's a, an interesting point that, um, you know, the, the major discoveries do seem to come from young scientists. And I think that is because of this, they, they, they lack the sort of uh, historical baggage of uh, what older scientists have. So, you know, in a way, it's it's tough as an older scientist to be able to see things the way a new person can. It's, like, it's kind of like just having a new set of eyes on a problem. Uh, you know, you, you may be trying to solve something and you can't uh, can't make heads or tails of it because of these kind of blockages in your vision, these blind spots that have been built up by the history you've had with the problem. And someone with a fresh set of eyes, someone with a fresh set of, you know, cognitive uh, structures can make more sense of it than you can. Um, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a sad thing. I think that is just, uh, that's the nature of, uh, of our, our psychological <laughs> yeah, you know, I it, mean, it's, it's the old, it's the, the, new... it's the evolution of ideas. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I gotta ask, man. I gotta ask, what's the forty-two for? I'm sorry, <laughs> it's such an oddball no, question. No, no, it's fine. So, so I made this logo right for veritasium, uh, which is a made-up element. You know, it was an element to, you know, made to sound. You know, the element of truth. Um, and I was thinking, well, what should the atomic number of this element be? You know, I could have tried for something like 117, a uh, brand new element, or 120 or 125, who knows, you know, something in the island of stability. Uh, I picked I for my uh, atomic number, right, the number of protons. I picked, you know, an imaginary number because this is an imaginary element. It's oh. the element of truth. Okay, I thought that was either for internet or inquiry. I thought it was yeah. <laughs> No, no, it was actually, it was, it was meant to be the square root of negative one. So if anyone thinks, well, how many protons are there in this element? It's like, well, you know, it does not compute because this is an imaginary element. Um, so that's why I picked I for the atomic number. And then for the mass number, I was debating on what to pick. You know, I could pick uh, pi or E, but I wanted something more metaphysical. And, uh, and I guess that's what brought me to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, and, and everyone knows the answer to that, it's 42. So that is why the, the mass number of my element is 42. And when did you start making, <laughs> <laughs> when did yeah. you start making these videos, and when did you design that logo? How long ago was that? Uh, it was 2010 that I designed the logo, uh, in the middle of 2010, and uh, I started really working full-time on the videos at the beginning of 2011. So this has everything to do with your thesis, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I think, you know, my, my PhD thesis definitely influenced some of, of the way I make the videos, uh, you know, especially interviewing people on the street and just getting the alternative ideas out there before I start to get to the correct stuff. Um, but I also think that there's a time and a place where those alternative ideas may not really exist in, in my audience. For example, if I'm dealing with something like a quantum computer, you know, people may not have a lot of ideas, uh, preconceptions going into it, in which case I feel sort of free to, to discuss it in, uh, in sort of a simpler way. But if it's something that, that I feel people will uh, have strong notions going into it, you know, I, I think the best thing to do really is to address those notions. Um, otherwise, it's very difficult to educate anyone. And, uh, I mean, do you feel like you were born to do this? Be real. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the truth is, I feel like what I'm doing with my life right now is the best possible thing for me to be doing with my life. I definitely feel like the fit is very good. I also feel like 
uh, I could never have dreamed of this career because when I finished my high school and when I finished my undergrad degree, for example, YouTube didn't exist. And I think I lamented to people that I wanted to be involved in the craft of filmmaking, but I also was not in it for the fame or for the money or for the glamour. I was in it for the access to lots of minds. And that's always been my goal, to be able to uh, address lots of people and hopefully change their minds about certain things about the world. I mean, for me, Veritasium is it's about multiple things. I mean, it's, it's about seeking the truth in the natural world. But for me personally, Veritasium was, was kind of this embodiment of I want to do with my life uh, what I've always wanted to do. You know, I, I want to pursue my passions and I don't want to pursue uh, sort of backup plans anymore, which is what I what I felt like I had done to that point in my life. I had been sort of too concerned with, uh, you know, making a living and, and doing uh, things that were safe. I never sort of took the leap and said, I want to be a creative person. I want to be involved in a creative enterprise. So partly that was what Veritasia meant to me. Hmm. One of the interesting coincidences, uh, do you think... I, I don't know enough about your success, and because I'm from the United States, I have this really not good perspective of the whole world. I, you know, I think people in the states tend to think that we're the world. <laughs> not, not, not good. <laughs> what I'm saying is, so that you, you know, you were born in Australia, but then you moved to North America when you're two, and so you don't have right. an Australia accent. Have you thought Correct. about that? That. <laughs> I, I'm just well, asking the man who lived it if he's thought about it. <laughs> well, well, can I can I throw you know one more thing into the mix, which is that my parents uh, grew up in South Africa, and uh, and that's where they did their studies um, before they left and moved to Canada, and then went to Australia, and I was born. I mean, wow. I, I I really feel um, you know Einstein talked about nationalism and how he felt it was an infantile disease. And he didn't understand why we weren't all just kind of global citizens. And I do feel like that kind of day is coming. And I personally find the bureaucracy of different countries, uh, you know, cumbersome and unnecessary, um, as you would when I when I feel more like a citizen of the world than a citizen of any particular country. So uh, that's that's the way I feel about these countries. Like they're all uh, great. But you're places. speaking the international language too. That's that's correct. That's correct. Maybe I would feel very differently if I spoke some very unique language. I recently spent some time in Lithuania and in the Czech Republic and Sweden, and uh, you know these are places that, to varying degrees, you know, speak English. But uh, but science everywhere is is pretty much it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you mean by that the the international that's the international language, you know, mathematics. I thought you were referring to English. No, uh, because because that is a, a de facto international language. You know, it uh, is doing its best to spread itself. So, yeah. Do you think the United States are ever going to lose the British units? <laughs> what? <laughs> I I do think it will happen. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a claim here. It's not gonna happen tomorrow. It's not gonna happen next week. But I don't have that hope. Sometime. Yeah, I, I'm telling you. I'm telling you somewhere deep in my bones, I feel it. I feel that this world is ready for one system of units. And in fact, you know, this is something that we've talked about a lot in terms of uh, making videos. Uh, you know, we're going to make a video about this at some point, about about the need for consistent units. That would be so a great hand, service. 
to like yeah well i mean a a lot of people are there already but um but i do think that there's something to be said for for everyone just getting on the same page with each other um and and i think that we will at some point Hmm. I, i like to do free association sometimes so i'll say something and i'll just the first thing that comes to your mind please don't get mad at me either okay you ready? All right. All right. Let me see what I can do. <laughs> 9-11. Powers. You know, I, I don't know if you want more than that, but, uh, but I, was in, I was in Kingston as an engineering student when that happened, and uh, uh, that, was a, that was a pretty, um, pretty unbelievable day, I think. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, but so that, that was a black swan day. Mm. Yes, and that's how uh, Nassim Taleb would qualify that. I, um, how do we know what we know, and should we trust that? I think that we we have worked really hard over hundreds of years to know what we know, and we've used our minds to their their best ability when we come to, you know, the scientific enterprise and we've uncovered a lot of things. And I think, uh, to a certain extent, a lot of those things can be relied upon. Um, in a way that's the power of science is that we rely upon these things as truths and we work forward as though they're true. I mean, even if we're not a hundred percent sure, we assume it until we come to uh, an anomaly, something that doesn't fit with our models. And at that point, um, we really struggle. But it's a useful struggle. And the whole process, the whole scientific method, I think, benefits us immensely. So, I mean, while I have, I have no doubts that certain things that we think to be true today will be overturned in the future, I'm okay with us going forward as though these things are true because I think that it, it leads us to the important questions down the track. It leads us to the anomalies, and I'm, I'm happy for us to go on that path. We will, we will work it out as we go, and I, I think we are making progress. That's uh, perhaps just a, a personal belief or assertion, but I think it can be backed up. I think that, that we are uh, you know, uncovering new things and, and we are establishing a map. Um, uh, that's not to say that everything is, is going to be fixed forever, but, uh, but I think we are, we are making progress. Are you aware at all of Dr. Rupert Sheldrake? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think so. Okay. He's a a British scientist who used to run around a little bit with Terence McKenna back in the good old days. <laughs> and so he he has some esoteric leanings, but he has some interesting thoughts too. In that he likes to think instead of laws of nature, he likes to think in terms of habits, and that yeah, habits. Lot, some habits are really ingrained. Which this is a little wacky, but the idea that, but, but that he's saying a law of nature could—it's not so much change. a law, but a habit, and it could change. Does that sound totally nuts to your science brain? To my science brain, it sounds pretty nuts. You know, um, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think that things can can change, but I think when they change, I think there's a good reason for it. Um, you know, for uh, one example that springs to mind is this idea that maybe the speed of light hasn't always been constant or the, the fine structure constant has changed over time. 
And if it has, you know, I think there are ways of figuring that out. And I think, uh, I think, I think we can work it out, but I think regarding these things as habits, I think, uh, diminishes them, um, beyond what, what is realistic. I think, uh, the kind of evidence that we've received and the kind of data that we've accumulated does suggest these things are more than habits. I think I think things uh, go deeper than that. Just on a side note, you mentioned um, the speed limit. I noticed in one of your videos you did put C on the speed limit sign. Are there science jokes in in lots of your videos? <laughs> I wish there were more science jokes. I feel like that is something that would attract more viewers. Uh, so, so it will be a goal to include more sense jokes in future, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that's, uh, that's something that, that people, uh, look for and really enjoy and something I should spend more time doing. Yeah. Easter egg kind of things. That's right. Right. And so for our listeners, why is the speed limit C? Why is the speed limit C? Uh, that is a very good question. I mean, it seems to come from Einstein in 1905 resolving a lot of paradoxes about our universe. I mean, if you if you think that there is a sort of a, a universal rest frame, uh, you run into all sorts of problems. If you think that there's kind of a, a speed at which light travels through empty space, um, and you resolve those problems by saying whatever reference frame you're in, as long as you're moving with a constant velocity, light has the same speed. Um, and, and nothing can go that fast. I mean, it, it's just a way of resolving a whole bunch of paradoxes and it does it, uh, remarkably well. And to this day, I mean, it seems like a fundamental truth. Um, I, I, I don't know. Does that, does that explain it well enough? I mean, it just, it was wonderful. Yes. <laughs> okay. As best as can be expected. <laughs> I thought I was the one throwing the curveball. <laughs> so I got. I want to know, Derek, what you have learned. Or what's the the biggest thing that you have learned off of this endeavor of yours? I think you know. I would be hard pressed to pick one thing that I've learned. I've learned so many things. I mean, I made this video about how magnetism is really kind of the electric field when viewed from a moving frame of reference. And I learned that when I was about 30, having done, you know, all the way to a PhD in physics, but just having never come across that for, for whatever reason. And it is such an incredible thing to think about magnetism as a result of sort of special relativistic length contraction. And it's just the electric field viewed in a different frame of reference. And that's amazing. That's when I really started saying, ah, now I get why they call it electromagnetism. You know, before I thought they were just combining these things that kind of seemed similar, but but weren't. Um, so I guess maybe that's one thing that sticks out for me. But another thing is like, you know, how trees transport water from their roots to their leaves. I always thought that that was, must be the most simple thing to do in the world. I mean, trees are dull, tall, boring objects. And, uh, you know, they got to move, move water from the roots to the leaves. That can't be so hard. But when I made this video about how a straw can only be 10 meters tall, then I had, you know, people clamoring for, well, well, how can trees be 20 or 30 or 100 meters tall if you can only make a straw that's 10 meters tall? And, uh, and I always assumed there was a simple answer. And then I dug into it and found the answer was much more complicated and uh, <laughs> much more interesting that, that, in fact, these trees were doing things with physics that we can't do. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here they have created structures and they are doing things that a physicist 
uh, on sort of a, if they didn't know trees were doing this, would say it is physically impossible, but trees have found a way to do it. And that, to me, is absolutely incredible. Where are you at with Intelligent Plan, then? And with Intelligent Plan, you know, I don't think that there is an Intelligent Plan. Um, I think that these sorts of things come about by billions of years. And I think I, I think it's so difficult for our minds to comprehend because we really can't comprehend what billions of years mean, what billions of years of evolution really can produce. Um, but But that is where I would place my bets because it's like, you don't place your bets on on something that you have no evidence for. You, I mean, I, I, I'm always drawn back to this thing of like, however odd something is, let me, let me give you a, a concrete example. I mean, about 70,000 people in Portugal saying they saw a UFO or something like that. Right. I mean, let's say it, it would be crazy for that to be a mass delusion. Right. But it would be even crazier for that to be an actual UFO. So that's where <laughs> right. I come down on it. I, I come down on the matter of probability on the side of, you know, how probable is, is X versus how probable is Y. And so in a similar way with things like, you know, the extraordinary abilities of trees, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's incredibly improbable that they've done it via evolution, but, but it's much more improbable that there's some, you know, uh, omnipotent, omniscient being that, that, that made it happen. Then what do you make of a guy like Brian Josephson? Uh, Josephson of the Josephson Junction. Is that correct? And now, so he won the Nobel Prize for, for the Josephson Junction, I believe. Yes. I saw him speak in Sydney, and he was talking a bit about ESP and Telepathy. other kind of supernatural things. This right. is the, the right Josephson, is it? That's the right one. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like, you know, he had his biggest success in graduate school, um, and then he won the Nobel Prize, and that basically, that'll, that'll get you sorted for life. And at this point, he, he's free to explore whichever ideas he wants. I mean, maybe he's right. I suspect um, that he's not. Um, you know, I, I suspect that he's gone down a, uh, a wrong alleyway here. But, um, you know, uh, everyone's, everyone's entitled to explore these hypotheses. But so what do you make of the peasants taking quantum theory and then using it to justify every esoteric thing under the sun? Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Um, you know, you know, quantum physics is a complicated thing, and uh, and it should be understood. But I don't want to see people twist it, you know, to sort of serve their agenda, which I see happening all over the place from you know Eastern philosophies, people like Deepak Chopra. Uh, you know, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth where you feel like science is being misappropriated for um, for in- incorrect ends. Well, so then, I mean, so like one of the interesting things that comes up a lot on our show is this idea of a Cartesian split where science, matter, and the devil all went to one side, and then you had spirit and God and soul kind of went the other direction. And the problem with that is that we kind of derive meaning from the spirity soul parts, and that makes matter kind of dead and and uh, apparently you know with with the the cartesian thing it, you know it was like we've had no dominion to evolution well we yeah. no we have dominion and therefore uh we can do whatever we want with whatever without any accountability i guess not mm. that uh, you know you are that like the, the idea that you the same stuff that's in that is is also in you 
which gets more into that Eastern-y stuff. But, you know, how do you, how do you, what do you do with the idea of meaning and more of the rational scientific stuff? Can you reconcile those two? What do you mean meaning and rational scientific? I mean, for, for me, there is no dualism. For me, I guess I'm a materialist, you know, we are all made of, of stuff and our experiences and everything comes down to the interaction of all of our particles. I mean, that's, that's where I would, would place myself. Um, but I don't think that, that means that there can be no meaning. Sure. Okay. So another way of thinking about it would be, it seems now people have a virtual life and a real life, right? So your virtual life is you make these videos online, then we have a relationship with you, but we don't really have a relationship with you. But what's funny is in our group, a lot of us had this virtual relationship, and then we're like, well, this this isn't real enough. We should all hang out in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's in Canada, and this guy's in New York, and this guy's in, in Washington, and it's like, well, okay, well, let's all get together and see what that's like. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm wondering in terms of the science question, if that has any more bearing on that? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. I mean, yes, I have virtual relationships with a lot of people around the world, and, and when I go to these different places, I try to meet them in person. I mean, I, I and in a way, I I hesitate to make these, uh, make these kind of fractures, if you know what I mean, between right. uh, yes. sort of real and virtual. I mean, in a sense, it's virtual, but also it is real. And at some point, it becomes even more real uh, when I visit the city and I meet the people. And um, yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to pursue this question further. If, uh, if <laughs> I'm trying to think about it. So you know, I, I'm just I want to talk in a more spiritual vein. Yeah, but this is horrible. I don't want to offend your your you know your rational scientific. Please, please offend. I mean, like I'm, I'm here to be be offended. I'm, I'm, a, I'm here to discuss all points of view, and nothing is ridiculous. Okay, let's just right? be offensive. Let's talk about Facebook. A lot of people. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Did, did you? Was there any fallout from that video? I would say there was very little fallout from the Facebook video. I mean, my view of how the Facebook video went with the public was that it was one of my most popular videos ever, not only in terms of views, but also in terms of likes, in terms of sentiment. I mean, everyone was on board with what I was saying. Uh, there were very, very, very few dissenters. And that is rare for any video I make. For any video anyone makes, you expect more dissent than I received on that video. So I guess uh, my interpretation of that is the sentiment around Facebook is currently quite negative, And that seemed to, you know, appeal to a lot of people's negative feelings around Facebook. Yeah. And then it it enabled you to utilize your science to such stunning effect on trying to understand how they do what they do. And then at the end, it's just kind of depressing. Yeah, you know, I feel like there is, I'm not totally anti-Facebook. I mean, some people look at it and say, well, Derek, you know, knowing what you know, why are you still on Facebook? And that's because my approach to life is not, uh, you know, sort of monolithic. I don't say, you know, things are fundamentally evil and therefore I will not uh, work with them. The the situation with Facebook is there are real people on there. There are also not real people on there. 
and uh, it kind of depends on what what sort of ratio of real to non people non real people you you sort of can engage with and how you can engage with them and and whether there is real connections happening uh, as a result of that. And I feel like it is a tool and used in the right way, you can get uh, interaction with with real people. So that's what I'm trying to do. Use it for the things that it can do and, and try to work around uh, its problems. Uh, I felt a personal kind of mandate, a, a personal kind of necessity to make that video because I felt that uh, a lot of people were wasting money on Facebook and they weren't aware of the type of thing that was going on. And I think the sort of reaction to the video has uh, supported what I believed um, that that is, that is true. Do you feel like there's been kind of a, an exodus to Twitter? I, I don't, I don't know that I have made that much of an impact in terms of people's behavior, uh, at least in terms of whether they use Facebook or not. But I do think I've changed behavior around whether people pay uh, for Facebook ads or not. I know that a lot of, you know, small companies have gotten touched to say that they really appreciate um, the message that I put out there and, and that it saved them a lot of money. So um, I, I think that is probably the biggest biggest contribution um, that I've made. But I don't think that, you know, even, you know, 3 million views or whatever it is uh, makes a significant, really, uh, budge on the dial. Um, I think that probably in time, 6 to 12 months, you know, more and more people will realize kind of where the utility in Facebook is and where it isn't, and therefore you know, what kind of investment is, is worth it and, and what isn't. So I, I think really we're sort of in the early days where people don't know what's going on yet and they're still working it out. Um, and, and we'll see sort of a, a shakedown coming in the, in the next year. Future of mankind, pessimist, optimist? I'd say I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I, I would never be in the camp that says, you know, humanity is going to blow itself up. I think that we have too much uh, sort of common sense for that. I don't know whether that's uh, whether that's foolhardy, you know, uh, optimism, or or whether it's based in reality. But but that's what I feel. Are the, are the robots going to take over? Are the which going to take robots. over? The <laughs> robots. I don't I don't think robots are going to take over either. Why am I so? Um, I, I'm such an optimist. You I, really it are. But oh, but it's it the kind of thing where, I, where the way the way you the way you maneuver with people is very apparent that there's. I mean, there's a humanity to you that is obvious, and I think it, it it is probably, you know, it has a lot to do with your popularity, as far as I can tell. No, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, have you always been easygoing with strangers, <laughs> or did that just grow out of the, that was a need that you had to do when you started making these videos? I think it's probably a mixture. I feel like... Uh, you know, when you have an objective, which is educating people, um, you can suffer a lot of humiliation in the service of that objective. And I'm willing to go through whatever, you know. Uh, uh, For me, it's not about ego. And and I think that's something that a lot of people understand when they watch the videos, that um, I'm I'm out there trying to help people. And uh, and like I say in, in one of my videos, you know, the reason there's this big smile on my face is because uh, I feel useful out there. You know, I feel like I'm actually doing something um, which is uniquely useful. And if I had a kind of purpose for myself, it would be to be uniquely useful. Because, you know, being useful is good, don't get me wrong. But you also don't want to be useful in a way that a lot of other people could be useful. I mean, it, it, it's, it's uh, 
I think the ideal is to find a way in which you can, you yourself, be uniquely useful, applying your, your unique talents and skills and knowledge, uh, you know, the way no one else can to make a, a positive difference in the world. What's next? These, <laughs> these are good questions. Uh, you know, I want to keep going on the YouTube channel. Um, I have, I've moved the YouTube channel a little bit in terms of its focus away from um, dealing with common alternative ideas and, and fundamental science towards dealing with more higher level topics and things that are more popular. Um, and that comes from, uh, you know, the fact that I now derive my main income from it. And uh, it's just, it's not possible for me to, um, to focus on, on fundamental science and still receive the same kind of views. So I look for things that are extraordinary, that are amazing, that really do wow me. So my audience now is sort of shifted to people who are more like me. Um, you know, I go out and investigate things and report back on what I find, and, and I hope that a lot of other people find that interesting. But I know at the same time, I'm leaving behind a group of people who, you know, are less well-informed about science and would like to be sort of brought up to speed. Um, so at some point, I'd like to address that fundamental mission, which is, you know, to help people who, who haven't had the best um, education in science to, to learn it and understand it more. So I'd, I'd like to be able to, to appeal to both audiences. What, wow. What, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about the various branches of – so if, if you could do it again, would you, would you go a different route scientifically speaking? Are you asking about regrets, Doug? Not regrets, but just like something um, – another, another path that is uh, as interesting – the only other path that I've really considered, um, when I was 17, I wanted to be acting or directing or making films right away. It's and like you're um, born to do this. I mean, come on. But 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 I but I didn't do it right. I, I didn't I didn't go straight for acting and film, et cetera. And one of the reasons I didn't do that was because I wanted to be a productive member of society and I didn't want to be, you know, kind of, you know, I feel like as an actor or a director, you, you're leaving your fate in the hands of other people and I couldn't do that. Uh, and I also just wasn't sure that my future would be good if I did that. So the first thing I did was I, I did engineering and physics, which is something that I'm passionate about. But, um, but fundamentally, I wanted to be more creative than that. I wanted to be more, more expressive and I wanted to be producing sort of a craft uh, in the way that I am now, but but it took me 10 years uh, out of high school to start doing that. So, um, you know, I feel like I spent a lot of time making backup plans and making sure I was financially stable before I set out on this venture, which um, which I think was a risky move, but uh, but something I'm very glad that I did. Do people have electromagnetic fields? Absolutely. Um, people emit electromagnetic waves. Um, and, and, and Do you that think is, people I guess, can control their magnetic fields? No, like magneto. No, I think, I think, no, 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 I'm talking about like so. uh, like the you know some people can lower their heartbeat, so forth and so on. Is it like an organ yep. that we don't know how to touch yet? No, I do not buy it. You know, I, I think we've got a pretty two four eight brother two four eight <laughs> two four eight. Here's the thing, right? Like, I just think that we've got a pretty strong handle on a lot of these uh, a, a lot of these things, like the way electromagnetism works with people. I mean, the, the electromagnetic radiation that comes off a person is really, um, really due to your temperature. So I, I'm sure some people can alter their body temperature slightly, but that's, you know, it's a minuscule effect. So um, I'm sorry, yeah, I, just, I just saw Spider-Man 2. I'm getting an <laughs> electro flow going on. Sorry. Huh. 
that is quite all right. So do you have any <laughs> – oftentimes our lens is synchronicity, which is meaningful coincidence. Do you have any coincidences that kind of made you into what you are, set you on your path? Jeez, uh, that is a tough one. Uh, and, and there is, I think, a coincidence in my life, but I'm not sure anyone else would, would consider it thus. But uh, when I was in grade eight, I uh, was making the yearbook. And I wrote a question uh, on the most likely to survey for the grade eights. And I, I wrote this question, most likely to graduate from Harvard. And I wrote this question because I thought I would win uh, that that uh, category. So, you know, it's a, it was about ego, I guess, at that point. And uh, what I didn't count on was when we counted the votes, uh, I, I won the, the guy's side. This was a high school in, in Canada, middle school, I guess. And on the girl's side, uh, there was a, a kind of girl who I was interested in, and, and she was doing okay in the votes. And I was trying to push her votes up, you know, so she would also win on the girl's side. But some other girl uh, uh, actually ended up winning on the girl's side, some girl I didn't know. And, uh, you know, that's just, just the way things went. And then we move on through high school, and at some point, I met that girl, you know, the girl who had, who had won the, the other side of that category. Uh-huh. And uh, she was she was extraordinary. And I knew immediately, you know, this is the girl that I want to be with. And uh, and so I spent sort of six months strategically becoming her best friend. And, and we ended up dating for, for two and a half years through high school. And uh, after high school, she, in fact, went to and, and graduated from Harvard. And what? I... Uh, it's extraordinary. That's freaking wonderful. <laughs> and I, in fact, did not apply to Harvard. And uh, and by the end of my high school, I kind of, I was over our relationship. You know, we, we, we sort of seen what it was like, but maybe I was bored or maybe I was young and I just wanted to see what the rest of the world had to offer. And, and I got a scholarship to go to a Canadian uh, university, so I never went to Harvard. And... Uh, Maybe I regretted that decision or, or what happened at the end of that. Certainly I did in, in my first year of university. And uh, and then you think about the, the motto of of Harvard, which is Veritas. And uh, and that's something that sticks with you, you know, Veritas, truth. And yeah. uh, and then I started this this YouTube channel, Veritas Sim. Yeah, so 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 that is that is the best uh, coincidence I can make in my life. That's the best coincidence story I can give you. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. That's <laughs> my pleasure. You've been listening to Derek Muller on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Derek can be found at veritasium.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And can you feel Newton's third law in your spleen now? It should settle (laughs) inside you and become a part of you. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Thank you so much, Derek. Uh, thank you guys. That was uh, that was fun. Okay, um, yeah, and I love your videos. Thank you so much. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Hey, man, can you explain?